Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Thank you so much for listening. As listeners to the show know, I give a lot of advice, and I have said about many big events, do you really want to put yourself through that madness? Do you want to deal with the crowds? Do you want to deal with the higher prices? I would say, though, that the Olympics are the exception to that rule. I've been lucky enough to be in cities hosting two Olympics, and they were both once-in-a-lifetime events, to be in a city where everyone is so happy and so proud of their home countries, and where there's this feeling that you're part of a world community. It really is something that you want to do at least once in your lifetime. I've been very lucky. I've gotten to do it twice. Well, we have an Olympics on the horizon. It's going to be in France next year. Can you still go? That's the big question. Is it too late to make plans? To help me answer that question, I have Will Whiston on the line. He's the executive vice president for On Location. They are the official and exclusive hospitality provider for both the Olympics and the Paralympics. Hey, Will, uh, thanks for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Hey, Pauline, and thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, thrilled to talk about Paris and the Olympics. Well, yes, it's a great topic. And the big question is, is it too late? Can you still get tickets to the games, find a place to stay, get airfare? Why don't we answer those in order? Are there tickets left? Can people book them at this late date? Even though it's next summer, for the Olympics, that's kind of late. You know, we're actually speaking and and answering that question at the perfect time because the answer is, it's not too late, but it may be soon. Um, Hmm. I mean, we've typically the world really wakes up to the Olympics around this time. Now, the amount of awareness and interest in the Paris Games I mean, that, is, that has been sooner. I mean, we candidly, we have seen so much interest that we're almost sold out. Well, we actually are sold out of a couple of events. Um, huh. We're looking to bring some more access online. But a few events like judo, um, which will be right in the heart of Paris, equestrian at um, Versailles. And you know, those are ones where we're looking to expand our footprint because we've already sold out and others are approaching huh. So if you've already sold out, how do you expand your footprint? I mean, you can't make the stadium bigger. What does that mean? Well, that's the beauty of a few of these and, and what, what the Paris Organizing Committee has um, taken on in this adventure. Of course, you think about major sporting events and maybe the World Cup. Yes, yeah, so every match will be in a large stadium. Um, right. One that's pre-built, massive, 80,000. Um, that's still the case for some Olympic sports, of course, like athletics, but the beauty of what Paris has done is really taken the Olympics and this ambition into the heart of Paris, you know, beach volleyball right under the Eiffel Tower. Um, I mentioned equestrian at Palace Versailles in the garden. Mm. Um, So there's a lot of temporary venues, which is costly, not easy to put up, but also means that you can, when you see interest, you can kind of reconfigure some of the seating, reconfigure the access, create more VIP access closer to the action, have a bit more flexibility, which is what we're working with Paris on doing. Oh, how interesting. So do people go to your site and is that on location.com to get tickets or how does it work? Exactly. They, you can go to our site and that has information where you can purchase right there. Seamless experience, which has never been provided for the Olympics before, something this seamless and centralized. 
Um, and it also has information if you're looking for larger groups, if you want to bring a group of more than 10, if you're looking to customize your experience a bit more to go to specific events and have certain experiences within Paris. Um, we also have the contact information easy to find for our, uh, our account experts who can walk people through the Olympic adventure. As to okay. the site, I should, I should add, you know, there's two ways to get there. There's on location, our main site, onlocationexp.com. And then there's also our uh, specific Olympic site. As you can imagine with the Olympics, you kind of need a very, uh, it deserves a spot of its own. And that's um, <laughs> hospitality. So that website is hospitalitytravelpackages.paris2024.org. Okay. And I, I should say, yet yeah, you were talking about alternate venues. I happened to be in London during the last Olympics there, and I went and I saw the marathon. You know, we knew where they were running by and everybody gathered and, and it was such a blast. Years ago, I was in China because uh, the Fromer guidebooks were the official guidebook for the Chinese Olympics. And so I went at the very last minute uh, to appear on the Today Show and talk about that. And I had to go for a complete week because we didn't know when I'd be on the Today Show. And what I saw was so interesting. And people notice this on TV too, because every country gets seats, there are often empty seats at the stadiums uh, because often the entire delegation doesn't get there and sometimes they're resold. Will people be able to get resold tickets at the very last minute as well? Will that be happening at this Olympics, do you think? At this Olympics, that, that will... that. There may be some of that um, toward the end, but really to step back, you spoke about, Pauline, with the Olympics, how it was a fantastic experience. It always has been, always will yeah. be. Right. But there's few opportunities in one's career. I, I've worked on my major events now for a while. Now, there's few opportunities to really change the landscape of an Olympic event because you just, or a, a major event period, you just touched upon the fact that, you know, there was last minute trading of tickets and some people might not show up to certain events. The Olympics, right. and the reason why people haven't heard about this offering that we have, nor have the Olympics been promoted as widely as they have and the ability to go, is because this didn't exist until these games. Huh. What we're doing has not existed. And that's why we're so excited to talk about it, as you can tell, and always bring it to market. Because now, despite the great experience you mentioned at past Olympics and that feeling of it, it was never the most organized, you probably noticed. There was never, it, it wasn't easy <laughs> yeah. to get hotels. You didn't know how to go to a specific event when you were on site. You know, how do you even get to an event sometimes because there might be crowds? We are here to change that for Paris and beyond. But Paris is the perfect launching off point. We have gone out and secured these hotels so that it's not last minute, you know, prices being being going through the roof and huh. um, and taken up at the last minute. We've already secured 5000 rooms. We've already secured access to every single event. We've already set up a whole transportation network within the Olympic transportation lanes. So this is an opportunity for guests to go as almost a member of a delegation from one of those countries and to have this sort of flexibility, opportunity to go to events, have ease and seamlessness of access, and get to focus on what you're experiencing. Huh, that's fascinating. Uh, how will it work with the transportation? I ask because in Beijing, I was in traffic for days on end until the day I appeared on the Today Show when a special car picked me up 
and I got to drive on a special lane as all the traffic was stopped on either side of me, That a lane that was only open to VIPs that got me to the Bird's Nest Stadium where, where we did our, our hit for the day. Is that the type of thing you're discussing, or what do you mean by the transportation system will be different? That's ex- that's exactly it, and, and I love the contrast you just gave because that's what we're solving for. Is yes, traffic has been a difficulty in past camps. I mean, it's it's the whole world world descends on one city that stresses a system. Now, our transportation is going to be at most levels utilizing exactly those Olympic lanes that you wrote in where. Um, they're set up specifically for operational as well as guest purposes. And with the status that we have as an organization and our, our products and the, our guests have within the um, whole Olympic Games delivery, is that sort of seamlessness that we're bringing? So not everybody can be in those VIP lanes, though, because then, you know, they're going to be as jammed as the rest. Is does your company div, give different levels in, in terms of how much you pay? So some, you know, uh, package number one includes I don't know event tickets and a hotel, but not special transportation. Package A plus includes the special transportation. I mean, how does that all work? Exactly. So we have three levels of product. One is uh, or of access, I should say. One is um, what we call in-venue hospitality or in-stadium hospitality, where that's if you if you were to go to a Knicks game, you're in New York, Pauline, if you're going to a yes. Knicks game and you, you, you sit in the Delta Club, for instance, there, which is, um, you know, you have the culinary experience, um, the lounge, that's one of our offerings. The second is our, you know, in-the-city hospitality, which is actually where you, you access the the event of your choice but then you also we have a large we've taken over the Musée de Tokyo um Palais oh. de Tokyo excuse me which is um overlooking the Eiffel Tower and we're bringing the Olympics into the city we're we're, we're gonna have this massive palace taken over where people get to extend their Olympic experience outside the venue and the third and this goes back to your question is our travel offerings which is when we say travel offerings that's where your whole experience is managed seamlessly from start to end. So those guests who, you know, are looking for that seamless experience that includes a hotel, restaurant reservations, access to the Louvre, access to the Eiffel Tower, access to sporting events, of course, that's where those that's where that transportation is so critical. Um, those who may be opting for in the city hospitality, which are those that probably coming from a closer area, not the U.S., but more, you know, a, the region around Paris or um, within Europe. That's where the transportation isn't as necessary, but we've set up a seamless guide and um, concierge service to allow people to get around via the metro and via other services we've partnered with. Do you also provide airfare, or is that something that people book separately? That is something that people book separately, Pauline, and uh, simply due to regulation and some of the complexities from different um, countries. But what we do do, importantly, and this is the hardest part, I mean, it's booking the airfare and finding the airfare is probably not the hardest part. The hardest part is once you land, how do you how do you navigate this whole ecosystem? And that's where our experiences start from them. I mean, they start even well before the games with virtual events and information on, on the games to build the excitement. But once someone lands at the Charles de Gaulle or Orly in Paris, we have our greeters there on hand ready to begin that seamless experience where people can focus on the Olympics and not, hey, how do I get my family around? Right, right. 
Now, I know that not every event will be in Paris. You talked about the uh, equestrian in Versailles. Won't there be some sailing events uh, on the coast? Won't there be long-range bike events elsewhere in France? Do you cover those as well? Yeah, the, the, there is a mix, um, which is exciting because it brings France into play, not just Paris. But um, you, you highlighted a few of them. The furthest reaching is surfing, which is in Tahiti, which I volunteered for. <laughs> I was hoping wow. to, I was hoping to work on that specific event, but you know th- that's not a major venue. But otherwise, Marseille has sailing, as you mentioned, which I do want to add in terms of the experiences we're bringing. That's one of the products I'm most excited about. One of the experiences I'm most excited about because. For the first time ever for you know many sailing events, but specifically an Olympic one, we are releasing, and this is soon, I don't want to give too much information, a product that um, is immersive, that allows people to be on the water, um, experiencing, I mean, imagine being in next on the water next to the uh, field of play, wow. experiencing French cuisine on a boat and taking in the action right, right on the border of the action. I mean, it's going to be incredible. Yeah, my goodness. Well, you've made me want to go back and do another Olympics. I got to say, especially uh, being there for the China one, that that just was a spectacular event. And fascinating because Beijing, a city I'd been to before, suddenly the sky was blue. I'd never seen the sky blue in Beijing. It was always a dirty gray because it's such a polluted city. Uh, but the, the Chinese government somehow made the sky blue for the Olympics. I think they closed all the factories for a month. But that's the kind of event it is. I mean, it really is a place or a time when every country just wants to be shown at its best. And uh, going to France for the Olympics next year it will be a spectacular, spectacular uh, experience. I mean, as a final message to your to your listeners and your audience, you know, this is going to be the kind of games where people say, were you there? Because it's going to huh. be, I mean, it's the first one in more than a decade in the Western world. It's going to be first one post-COVID. And people go to Paris to begin, it's the most visited city to begin with. But imagine an Olympics intertwined in that. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, it will be. All right. Thanks again. This summer marks the 70th anniversary of the end of the Korean War. Specifically, July 27th was the date that it was ended. As the daughter of a Korean War veteran, this is a war that that I've heard a lot about, but many Americans don't know about it, which is why I was so pleased to see that the Veterans History Project of the Library of Congress is making a special effort to commemorate that war and bring to the fore the stories of those veterans. To help me discuss this and also to discuss how people can go to the Library of Congress and access this type of material and much more, I have Monica Mohindra on the line. She is the director of the Veterans History Project. Hey, Monica, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Oh, I really appreciate you having me, Pauline. Thank you. So I know a lot about the war, but as I was saying before, a lot of Americans don't. In fact, it's known as the Forgotten War. Why was it forgotten or was it forgotten? Well, I think it's 
received that moniker because between World War II and the Vietnam War, these two huge, vast conflicts really captured generational American attention. And the confluence of the Korean War with the silent generation and generational shifts in the country make it easy to think of it in that way. However, it's really important for us, particularly during these milestone years, to move past that and and to see and witness the relevancy of that conflict and those veterans in our lives today. For instance, you mentioned it's the 70th anniversary of the Korean War, but it's also the 75th anniversary of the desegregation of the United States military. And those two things happening at the same time have a huge impact on our daily lives today. Uh, Well, I'm sure they do. And so it's a war that, as, as we said before, many people have forgotten about, but it impacted a hell of a lot of people. Six million veterans served. When people go to the Library of Congress and they ask to see Uh, the documents from the Veterans History Project, specifically the Korean War one. What do they encounter? What is that experience like? We have a wonderful information center located in the Jefferson Building of the Library of Congress, which you can come to and uh, make an appointment to do a deeper dive if, if your listeners would like to. The documentation of the first-person experiences of the collections within the Veterans History Project starts with groups of materials that speak to that individual experience of veterans' human uh, service. So that would be original collections of photographs and letters, interviews that are audio or video recorded. So when visitors come to the Library of Congress, They can see a collection that is thematic to what is happening uh, in this particular time frame, which is celebrating this um, milestone of the 70th anniversary of the Korean War. Or if they're coming at another time, perhaps they're looking at a small display of these collections from a particular heritage month. Let's talk a little bit about the personal stories. And also, I got to say, I'm so glad you said you're in the Jefferson Building because every American should see that building. It's extraordinarily beautiful, perhaps the most beautiful public space in all of Washington, D.C. But back to the collection, when my father talks about his experiences of the Korean War, he talks about basic training, where he was the first Jew a lot of his fellow GIs had met and where he experienced some discrimination from that. Do any of these stories that have been collected from veterans deal with the social issues that were uh, really, really uh, at the forefront of American history as well as veterans history? Absolutely. The military experience and collecting the individual personal recollections of veterans' stories enable us to get to what individual people felt, saw, heard, what their personal experiences were like. Can you give us an example of what what, a story might be like? Sure. One example would be that of Paul Bradley, 
who served in the Air Force during the Korean War. He actually didn't make it through cadet training, but then later went to officer candidate school and became Mm -hmm. a navigator and then a bombardier. In Korea, he rode in the nose of a B-26, mostly at night, looking for, as they said, targets of opportunity. Navigating in nearly total darkness, he shares, was a a complete challenge. Mm -hmm. And he also talks quite a bit about times when his plane might have gotten off course or they ended up flying in the direction of things they shouldn't have been. He shares a personal experience in this um, engaging and long story about how uh, his most challenging, most high security, most restricted, difficult moment actually happened um, when he got off course and flew over the White House. F-86 showed up on either side of him, prepared to shoot him down if necessary. And they were able to establish radio contact and only had to say two words, turn left. He followed the orders (laughs) immediately and felt lucky to have survived that near deadly mistake. And that expresses a really important part of all of our collections, which is that it's not just those moments at the the battleground, the battlefront, but that it's the collective story of all kinds of service that's really important for us all now today to understand our connection to this collective history through these individual stories. I have another if you're interested. Please, yes, yes. So there was another veteran, Mr. James Allen, who also was in the army, but he joined. He was not drafted. He enlisted as a means to escape life in racially segregated Florida in the 1950s. Huh. Growing up, he the idea had been ingrained in his culturally, he was taught whites should go first. But in the army, he speaks to, in his collection, through the various administrative capacities he served during the Korean War and others, that he was always ready to take on a new challenge particularly those that might not have been that he was specifically trained for his job assignment. And so the Army and his experience on a personal level really opened horizons for him. He later Mm -hmm. earned a Bronze Star that was during the Vietnam War. And he took his experience during the Korean War and the Vietnam War and took that back with him to Florida and immersed himself in the community there and in veterans programs to make the most of his talents, but also to take this expanded perspective back with him after his experience in the Korean and Vietnam conflicts. We have so, so many, and I, <laughs> I could go on yeah. far too long. Oh, I'm sure. No, those were fascinating. So uh, uh, when people access these stories, are they listening to them? Are they reading them? Are they watching videos? I'm just, I just want to get down to the nitty gritty about what the experience is like visiting with the Veterans uh, Project at the Library of Congress? It can be as immersive as you would like it to be. Visiting our website, uh, loc.gov forward slash vets, that's with an S for plural. You can make an appointment if you'd like to and get very deep into, you can have a selection of collections served to you so that you could listen to them and view or hear the audio or video materials, be served paper materials where the collections exist. 
And Mm. that can happen really once you get your reader's card. Anyone uh, can apply for these reader's cards who are uh, high school age or above. And these enable you the opportunity to make this appointment to come to the American Folklife Center reading room and be a researcher, delve into these experiences, understand perhaps more about a loved one in your family or your community Mm -hmm. that served during the Korean War, particularly this summer, but in any conflict that's an interest to you. Yeah. Well, it was it was being drafted into the Korean War that changed my uh, father's life definitively, because before he would have would have been sent to Korea, they discovered that he spoke Russian and German. And so instead of being sent to Korea, they sent him to Berlin. And that's when he started traveling. And he wrote a little guide for GIs. All of his fellow GIs would stay at the base. Uh, because they were worried about traveling around Europe because World War II had just ended. There were a lot of places that were still in rubble, and they didn't have that much money, and they didn't think they'd be able to travel pleasurably. But my father knew he could, so we ran all over Europe, and his GIs back at the base would pepper him with questions because they weren't leaving the base. And he wrote a little book called The GI's Guide to Europe, which became a bestseller in the Army. And then uh, he wrote it again for civilians under the title Europe on $5 a day, and it totally changed his life. So uh, he, he owes his fame and uh, career to the, to the Korean War. That's amazing. Being drafted. Yeah. Um, I understand <laughs> he was in the Army. Is that correct? He was in the Army. Yes. He could have entered as an officer, but he didn't want to be in the Army for too long. So he entered as a private and was very luckily sent to Europe rather than Korea, because Korea was an incredibly bloody war. A lot of the people he trained with didn't make it back or made it back with very serious injuries. Uh, so it was it was a serious, serious war. Of the uh, six million or so service members who served during the Korean conflict, there were only thousands um, that were serving in Europe at the time, but it was also an extremely important part of everything that was happening in U.S. military service at the time. And I'm just really thrilled to hear you speak to his experience and help everyone be enlightened in this um, other area that was so important. Yeah. Was he oh, there in, during the when the armistice was signed or was he there? Do you have further details about him? Don't, don't. I don't know. I know he was there because it was the height of the Cold War, and they believed that if the East was going to invade the West, there was going to be an uptick in food production. And he spoke German and Russian, and so he would uh, talk with spies who came over every day. This was before the wall, wall was up in Berlin, and they would tell him, how many loaves of bread were baked or how many chickens were killed. And he would have to keep these massive lists because the army thought if the East was going to invade the West, there'd be an uptick in food production. So he became their expert in looking at food production in Berlin, in East Berlin. It's amazing. It just goes to show all the different ways that information was gathered and how we can all intersect with that. I mean, food, (laughs) it's such (laughs) an important part of how we we live our lives. 
I just would take um, just a small moment to invite you personally to work to share your dad's story with us. Obviously, you and your family are well known for the impact you've had on, on the rest of us in terms of opening up the world for travel. But to have his story part of the larger story of the Korean conflict here at the Library of Congress Veterans History Project, we'd really love to see that. Oh, sure. I, we'd be happy to. I'll, I'll talk to my father about it. Well, on that note, I want to thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show and to tell all our listeners, it's always a great time to go to the Library of Congress. But this summer, I think, will be particularly eye-opening and fascinating. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer's Travel Show. We really appreciate you putting a light on all of this. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. Before I say goodbye, though, I'd love to point your attention to a recent article in the New York Times that I was actually quoted in. It's about the fact that we are now seeing a huge flowering, I guess that's the only word to use, a flowering of AI-generated guidebooks that are being sold on Amazon, that are actually printed on paper by Amazon, that are flooding the market. And more importantly, each one comes online with hundreds upon hundreds of fake reviews attached, glowing reviews that do not reflect what's in the books. The books, I gotta say, are total crap. Uh, to give you an example of what's in these books, uh, I was reading a review of one of these AI-generated Ireland guides, and they have a section on the seasons and under fall, it switches from a chat about the weather to a chat about falling and the issues with falling. So this is a warning. This is a request that if you see these clearly fake reviews for guidebooks that you'll report it to Amazon because clearly they're not doing everything they need to yet to police this problem. And a lot of people are being defrauded. A lot of people are losing money uh, by reporting the, the bad reviews or the, the fake reviews, I should say. Uh, hopefully they get taken down. And please support the actual journalists out there like Lonely Planet, like the Moon Guides, like us. We spend months upon months putting together our guidebooks. We hire local journalists who are just spectacular writers and are embedded in the destinations they cover. And so they give the type of in-depth, rich content, rich advice that you're just not going to find many places. You know, I can't remember what it was. I was reading a, an article recently about the guidebookization of travel, as if that were a bad thing. And I, I felt like shaking the author and saying, look, a guidebook has to be several hundred pages long, usually. And so you are not getting pat, boring information. You are not getting steered to tourist traps because we have so many pages to fill 
that you're also going to be getting the places that only the locals know about because our books are written by locals. You're going to be getting advice on how to visit the iconic sites at times when other people's people aren't there, where, you, where you're going to face fewer crowds. You're going to be getting really smart itineraries that will show you how to make the most of your vacation time because God knows most of us don't have enough vacation time. And so guidebooks are really, really good in, in terms of helping you plan your time. So it's breaking my heart that these spam guidebooks are proliferating. They're hurting our business. They're hurting the business of our competitors. And frankly, it's not just a guidebook problem. There are also fake books on nonfiction topics like coding or uh, different types of crafts or cookbooks or or many, many different genres are being um, hurt this way. So it's going to be very interesting to see if Amazon does anything. Right now, none of the platforms that post reviews have been punished by the Federal Trade Commission for having fake reviews on their sites. And and part of me thinks that's fair. But in this case, Amazon is not just posting or allowing the posting of those reviews. It's also printing these guides because all of these phony books are being done through Amazon's print-on-demand service. It's also allowing uh, these, these fraudulent guidebooks to pay for keyword advertising. On Amazon, every publisher has to put in bids on different keywords. Like we have a guide to, say, Paris, we bid on the keyword Paris guidebook. And every time someone clicks on that keyword or puts it into Amazon, we pay 10 cents or 15 cents or 40 cents or even up to a dollar, all money that's going to Amazon just so people can find our products there. Well, these fraudsters are also paying Amazon for this. So Amazon's making money every which way and not doing a very good job policing. And so a lot of people are being defrauded. They're ordering guidebooks before they travel, and they're getting pamphlets that are just totally unusable, totally unhelpful. So a warning and a request, if this upsets you, let Amazon know, let your local congressman know, Uh, we need to fight this. Uh, And as I said before, this is going to be an issue that is going to affect all types of content not just guidebooks. So if you care about professionally created content, content that helps you do something better because somebody, a human being, (laughs) wrote it and really cares, we hope you'll stand with us in this fight. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, I wish you a hearty bon voyage.